0: Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Anne Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced by the Institute for the Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Hey, Karen, how are you? I'm good, Anne. How are you? Good, good. Nice to see you. Like, this is the first time we actually are looking at each other. That's I know. Fun. It's, it's really fun. I do that before. Um, so, yeah, we have some good things to talk about today. And uh, you're going to talk first about uh, melatonin. melatonin. Yeah. I love sleeping. So, that's a
1: great. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, the reason this article caught my eye is actually because of. I can't remember if it was a question of the week or a podcast, but you had brought up an article on mel- melatonin previously. Mm-hmm. And so this was in the September 2020 issue of breastfeeding medicine. And it's titled melatonin content of human milk, the effect of mode of delivery. Um, and it was um, by Sonia Aparithi-Gonzalo, Alvaro Carrasco-Garcia and others. And um I'm gonna go through the abstract briefly and then some highlights that I um, was interested in. So in the abstract, the authors stated their objective was um, cesarean section rates are increasing in developed countries and could be performed as an emergency or elective procedure. Our research aim was to determine whether elective cesarean section influences the melatonin content, the main circadian hormone in human milk. And for their methods, 21 women after vaginal delivery and 18 after elective cesarean section were included. Only healthy mothers with normal newborns and exclusive breastfeeding were recruited. Two samples of milk were collected for each woman at three stages of lactation, colostrum, transitional milk, and mature milk. At each stage, one daytime sample and another nighttime sample were obtained. 228 milk samples were studied. Melatonin content was analyzed and in the results, the melatonin rhythmicity was higher, with higher melatonin content at night was maintained in each of the three stages of lactation, regardless of type of delivery, a higher melatonin content was found in daytime colostrum after cesarean section with respect to colostrum obtained from mothers after vaginal delivery melatonin content decreased progressively throughout the course of lactation in both groups. The decrease was significant when comparing transitional milk to colostrum in the cesarean group in both daytime and nighttime samples. So they concluded cesarean section is associated with an increase in daytime colostrum melatonin. And while it was not significant in mature milk, melatonin values in human milk decreased during the first month of lactation And circadian rhythmicity, I don't think I can say that word, rhythmicity was observed irrespective of the mode of delivery. Um, So some of the interesting things about this article, which were not necessarily the things that the authors were trying to highlight, um, had to do with the purposes of melatonin and breast milk. And while we had talked previously about the, um, you know, the fact that it affects our Ability to know day from night. I don't remember that we had talked last time about um, it as an antioxidant. So I was really interested when the authors, you know, reminded me that, um, as we know, human milk is species specific for newborns. It's highly specialized and dynamic in nature. And many components exert beneficial effects on the baby. Some of these are under research, and one of them is melatonin, the main hormone involved in circadian rhythms in vertebrates, and it is secreted mainly by the pineal gland. Melatonin is a highly diffusible molecule whose receptors are ubiquitous in human organisms. It is under the influence of the night-day cycle from the retino-hypothalamic tract and supra-achiasmatic ac- nucleus. Thus, melatonin secretion reaches its highest levels during the night and is very low during the daytime. This is the last time I pick an article on basic science. I'm going to get like tongue-tied the whole time. Outside of its influence on the sleep-wake state, melatonin has several other physiological implications. It is a powerful antioxidant and has immunomodulatory effects. And I think, you know, if you look at this special issue from September, which was all about, um, you know, basic science of milk and the president's corner article at the back, um, from Dr. Allison Stubbe, you know, she's really like, it's, there's no formula for human milk, I think was the title of her article mm-hmm. this month. And, you know, mm-hmm. we talk so much about the various ways that breast milk helps, um, babies to keep safe from infection. And I'm like, yep, there's another one. I can add it to my slide. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so Interestingly, fetuses do not secrete melatonin until 9 to 15 weeks of gestation. Levels increase in the third trimester of gestation and drop down after birth. Mature circadian rhythm and response to the light dark cycle develops later at two to three months of life. And thus, human milk is the only melatonin source in the perinatal period. And the infant melatonin level depends on this in this period on the circadian melatonin rhythm of the mother. The authors hypothesized that the breast milk content of melatonin can be affected by mode of delivery. Um, And I just wanted to stop for a second and say, the study was done in Valencia, Spain, where Mm -hmm. apparently I need to move um, because although their cesarean section rate was 30%, which is similar to where I am, um, skin to skin after birth was routinely practiced in all cases, including in the operating room the kangaroo method was favored during the hospital stay. The exclusive breastfeeding rate at home discharge was 96.8%. That's amazing. All women received individualized advice and follow-up on breastfeeding from the first day after delivery to home discharge by International Board Certified Lactation Consultants. The duration of hospital admission in women who had vaginal delivery was at least 48 hours and those who underwent cesarean a minimum of 72 hours after the procedure. After discharge, women received telephone follow-up the first week after delivery. Um, As they mentioned in the abstract, there were 44 women in this study um, and the samples were extracted under dim light exposure. Left less than 30 lux, and and collected in containers covered with light-protecting paper until defrosting. Did -hmm. you know that melatonin is broken down in light?
0: Um, I didn't know that, but I do see that when you buy melatonin, it comes in amber bottles.
1: (laughs) Ah, I thought that was fascinating.
0: (laughs) But a lot of pills do come in amber amber
1: bottles. Um, So in the main results of this study were one, the melatonin rhythm in breast milk is maintained independent of mode of delivery. So there was higher melatonin in both groups at night. Um, There is more daytime melatonin content in the colostrum of mothers who delivered by cesarean section. Melatonin content decreases throughout the lactation time, mainly between colostrum and transitional milk, um, which by the way, they defined as... The colostrum was in the first 24 hours, transitional was collected between days three and seven and the mature milk at one month of age. And um, lastly, at one month of age, no differences were found in the melatonin content between vaginal delivery and elective cesarean section. Hmm. Um, It was supposed that daily fluctuation in the level of melatonin might communicate time-of-day information to newborns, promoting the establishment of biological rhythms. This fact highlights the importance of breastfeeding for infant neurodevelopment and reveals that human milk is a powerful source of chrononutrition information to the newborn. Chronobiological variations in human milk may represent an additional mechanism that improves breastfed newborn adaptation to environmental conditions. This advantage is not present in infant formulas. Um, both vaginal and cesarean section are a kind of stress to women and newborns, which could lead to oxidative stress and inflammatory response. Melatonin is a potential neuroprotective agent against oxidative damage. The increase in melatonin is the day, in the daytime colostrum from mothers after cesarean section Uh, may be interpreted as a protective mechanism to the newborn against oxidative and inflammatory stress consequences of this surgical procedure. In this sense, melatonin and colostrum is important not only for synchronization of the infant's circadian rhythm, but also for the protective effects of breast milk. And interestingly, you know, this decreased as time went on during lactation. So in conclusion, the authors stated that this study may help to improve um, the administration of expressed human milk according to the time of day and mode of delivery and its potential therapeutic use under conditions of oxidative stress and that was fascinating. Um, You know, all of that milk that women pump for their babies in the NICU is being stored in refrigerators that the lights come on or have glass doors. And so um, that made me really think about if this does have, you know, practical applications, that's something that's going to need to change.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The storage. And then also the um, like I've had patients ask me, they've heard a little bit about this. And so they'll ask, well, should I be putting, you know, times on my milk that I make sure that my evening milk is given at, like, if they're expressing my evening milk is given in the evening? And, you know, we just don't know yet, um, like, what the clinical correlation there is. But it would make sense that, you know, if you want to be able to sleep, that you give the milk that has the highest amount of melatonin, because my understanding is that there is a big difference in the levels of melatonin
1: from morning to evening. Um, Yeah, there is.
0: um, But I think
1: that um, for me, the thing that was even more interesting is this idea about reducing oxidative stress. So
0: um, yeah, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, although like I've read that, that it's an antioxidant, but I haven't seen any studies that correlate like the level of melatonin with, like differences in infant's health. Like, I know, of course, I think the one thing that we talk most about when we talk about oxidative stress is like respiratory distress, uh, like uh, um, respiratory distress syndrome, or, you know, like, you know, infiltrative lung disease or neck, necrotizing. Yeah, disease.
1: absolutely. And the, the other thing that the authors talked about, but I didn't really dig into was This study sort of was extremely tight in their exclusion criteria. Any woman who had a cesarean um, for premature with a baby who's premature or um, would have had any other reasons for stress or an emergency C-section where the mom would have been intubated were all excluded because they didn't want moms with um, more inflammation. Mm-hmm. Um, they really wanted those normal elective cesareans because they, you know, the melatonin is, it's in equilibrium with the mom's blood serum. And so if mom's having a lot of inflammation, that's going to impact what's measured in the milk. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're trying to see how does that cesarean section impact how much melatonin is going to go into the milk and for how long does it last?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder why they thought that um, there might be a difference between vaginal birth and um, cesarean.
1: Yeah, they talked a lot about that and the differences in this study and previous studies. So, um, you know, people who are curious about that, I definitely recommend they read the full article. I just hit the highlights. Okay. Uh,
0: um, Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I mean, also, I think that there are more deliveries that happen. You know, vaginal deliveries are more likely to happen at night and cesareans are more likely, like the elective elective ones are more during the day. That, plays a role.
1: that would be interesting if they looked at the time match, the deliveries. Yeah,
0: yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think that um, it would be interesting if this is one of those things where like, because it varies in breast milk, in melatonin varies in breast milk, the question is how could a formula company decide <laughs> you know, they're going to put in the milk, like this is your morning this is your eating formula you know, got the one with the melatonin and yeah or like here's some additional like little tinctures you can add to the formula you know as we as we find out more and more about the different substances it's like adding bitters to your you know I
1: mean, they do right like formula companies they're like oh oligosaccharides we'll add one to formula and say that this is just as good so you know melatonin yeah. maybe in the pipeline, but I don't, you know.
0: Yeah. I guess if they put it in all the form and if they just put like a uniform amount in formula, then babies would maybe have less colic. Maybe they'd be sleeping more. Maybe they, Everyone would like it'd be a happier society. Right. <laughs> yeah. We don't want to say that. Yeah. We'll no. all be
1: happier if we get more sleep. That's true. Exactly.
0: Yeah. No, I think that, you know, this is just one of those examples of how, um, you know, about how there's this, this difference that it'll never, like what Allison said and Dr. Stuby said, you know, we're just not going to have, um, a, you know, a, a breast milk that, a formula that's going to be breast milk, a formula for formula. Yeah, yeah. okay, that's interesting. So I'm going to um, talk about another article um, that's entitled Endocrine Disrupting Chemicals and Breastfeeding Duration, a Review. And this was done by um, a group Oh, I can not remember what it was stated. Um, in the United States, uh, Rachel Quiswell, Catherine Crawford, Hannah Buchinka, and Megan Romano. I think it was at the Department of Family Medicine. I can't remember where it was. Um, but anyway, uh, this was published in Current Opinion Endocrinology in 2020, uh, volume 27. It's an open access article. If anyone would like to just grab it, um, the goal of this review was really to describe the epidemiologic and toxicology literature that looks at how endocrine disrupting chemicals affect mammary gland development and function. And this is not anything new. I mean, this has been studied so much um, in other animals, like, you know, frogs and, uh, you know, and uh, fish life in gen- like water life, you know, looking at these weird um, sexual changes
1: in. Uh, endocrine disruptors have been, but then you, you were saying endocrine disruptors in mammary and I was like, frogs and fish don't have that. <laughs>
0: Well, but we know that it, had, that it plays a role, like the hormonal, right, They're endocrine disruptors. And so um, I remember back like in the 90s, uh, I remember Rogan, I remember learning in the 90s about Rogan's work in the 70s, um, where he was able to identify that uh, pubertal females who were exposed to these large chemical spills, um, particularly PCBs before they were not made anymore. Um, or not used in this country um, that they ident- that he was able to identify that these pubertal females actually had altered breast development <clears throat> excuse me and um, the um, so these authors are saying that you know based on some of his work and other evidence that uh, there's uh, there are these sensitive windows of breast development when these endocrine disrupting chemicals can affect memory development um, and there've been several reviews also on how these chemicals play a role in the development of breast cancer. And of course, breast cancer rates have really increased over the last several decades. Um, most likely, you know, certainly at least partially um, due to these change, the amount of chemicals that we're exposed to. Um, but in addition to the effect on the development of breast cancer, um, they can have an effect on uh, the development of glandular tissue. So then it's not surprising that they would interrupt um, lactation as well. So there were actually three studies that were done showing a relationship between PFAS, which are, um, which are common chemicals that are used in food packaging in mothers and um, shorter duration of breastfeeding. So PFAS are the alkyl and alkyl substances. Uh, they're, they're these degradation-resistant chemicals that are used. They're, um, they're used inside food packages like um, you know how sometimes you get these food packages that have like this layer on the inside that are like oil resistant so they seem kind of slippery like inside uh styrofoam if you do take out um and um so i, I oh yeah i
1: know what you mean
0: yeah and I, and also i think they line like um tin cans and other food packaging products basically they're used in firefighting foam and industrial surfactants they're found all over the world. They're found in air, soil, and water throughout the entire world. Um, so the association of shorter breastfeeding and levels of PFAS have been documented in populations in Cincinnati, Denmark, and also in the Faroe Islands, which are in near Scotland. Um, they didn't find the same results when they looked at a group of Norwegian women, but then they actually looked at the PFAS chemicals that they were exposed to, and they were different. So they think that, you know, different PFAS chemicals are going to have a different effect. Um, and then um, on a bench level that, you know, this has also been shown, you know, by with the biologic plausibility, you know, looking at mice, they found that when mice are exposed to PFOS during pregnancy, that they had less memory gland differentiation and a delay in epithelial involution, which would mean to me that, you know, they just like that persistent, you know, evergreen tree, like they can't stop lactating. Um, And this has also been seen not only in the mice exposed to PFAS during pregnancy, but also if they are exposed as fetuses um, and as juveniles. Um, So PFAS not only have been found to distort lobular and alveolar development, but they're also found to suppress lactation and placental uh, lactogen signaling, which plays an important role in breast development. And the scary thing, too, which they stated, is that PFAS, have also been found to alter milk proteins, which changes the milk quality and quantity Uh, that's been found in rats. So that's pretty scary. So in addition to the PFAS, the same findings have been uh, seen with the halogenated aromatic hydrocarbons like PCBs, which are also known as polychlorinated biphenyls. I think we all know them as PCBs. And then the PBDEs, which are the polybrominated biphenyl ethers, ethers, Um, And studies showed that uh, different types of PCBs have been shown to affect lactation differently um, because they probably affect the endocrine system differently, just like different PFAS chemicals will affect the system differently, which is going to make it really difficult to like, you know, prevent a lot of the stuff in our environment. If we can't be, you know, if they all are a little different, then we don't know, you know, like. We don't have like this really solid evidence that consistently they're affecting, you know, breast development of lactation in a certain way. And then there are the um, organo the organochloride pesticides, which um, really are historic here, like DDT, um, and its breakdown product, DDE. These are persistent um, pollutants that don't break down. They were banned in the 1970s, but they're still around and they've really accumulated in our environment. And these also have estrogenic and anti-androgenic effects that can disrupt mammary gland development. And um, so the weird thing is that some studies have showed that some populations have shorter uh, lactation duration and others have longer lactation duration in association with these chemicals. So um, for example, DDT has been shown in puberal rats to have um, enhanced breast growth and glandular proliferation So it makes me think about all these women who are like making so much milk. It's like, whoa, you know, what is, you know, is this playing a role in that? And then the last group, and these are all chemicals that we've heard of, right? There's phenol A, you know, BPA. Um, That's been um, also shown to have an effect on lactation. There was one cohort of Mexican women who um, were found to have, they found that higher levels of BPA was associated with shorter lactation duration. Although, on the other hand, you know, again, it's this yin-yang of like how these chemicals affect breast development. There are rodent studies that show direct and indirect estrogenic activity on mammary gland development with increased branching, increased ductal development, increased volume of those terminal buds from which the glandular tissue comes from, increased mammary epithelial cell proliferation, and increased alveolar-lobular cells. So it not only may disrupt and, you know, create disorganized and ineffectual glandular tissue for some women, but might actually cause excessive proliferation in others. So I think it's something, you know, this is like the tip of the iceberg. This is just food for thought. We know that these chemicals are around. We know these chemicals have had an effect on breast cancer development, on the rates of breast cancer. And there's so much for us to learn about how this is affecting us, uh, via you know, regarding lactation.
1: That was terrifying. And I can no longer complain about having to pronounce long chemical names. I'm yes, odd by you. Oh, yeah, I just,
0: uh, but whatever. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, I, um, I'm very, yeah, I was and we're very concerned. And, um, you know, I think we need to um, pay closer attention to this. And, Um, understand this more but also really I think it's a comment upon us in the world of lactation to really support um, uh, environmental laws and recycling and not using excessive stuff that has chemicals and whatever we can do to really help keep the environment clean and cleaned up from where it is right now.
1: Yeah especially because this stuff sticks around for a very long time. Yeah,
0: yeah, and I think DDT is still being used in some countries. I think it's been allowed to use in some uh, really low resource countries um, because it is such an effective pesticide that they're allowed to use it in some crops. So yeah, I mean, there are people who are still being um, actively exposed to high levels of it. Um, that is
1: a shame. Yeah.
0: All right. You're well, um,
1: <laughs> let's uh, change gears. And we're gonna talk about um, one more um, brief article from September Breastfeeding Medicine, which was titled, Rusty Pipe Syndrome and Review of Literature. Um, And this was by Bahar Kural and Sirap Satmaz. Um, So they report presence of blood in colostrum may change the color of breast milk and it is known as rusty pipe syndrome. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just, when I read this, I had a, a recent experience taking care of a patient where this came up. And I thought back to, also to a uh, conversation I had with Tina Smiley about how so many things in lactation are not named. Yeah. You know, they weren't named by medical people. And so, you know, we've got in our vocabulary, those, you know, chronobiology we were talking about in the last article. And, you know, there's a lot of words in medicine for blood in fluids. So there's hematuria and hematemesis and hemoptysis. And I would like to propose that someday maybe yeah. we could consider renaming this. Yeah. And, you know. i like, Yeah, hemolectia, something like, Mm -hmm. can we please use a doctor word? Because first of all, it's horrible to tell the patient. I mean, Mm -hmm. anyway, I I digress. At any rate, Mm -hmm. it may resolve within days, but it may be a barrier for exclusive breastfeeding. Knowledge of rusty pipe syndrome among health professionals is very helpful in the management of breastfeeding initiation. The beginning of milk production... Um, may coincide with bloody nipple discharge or brown milk, which is a self-resolving physiological syndrome referred to as rusty pipe syndrome or RPS. It usually results from old blood clots in ducts, a residual of rapid growth and vascularization during pregnancy. This condition is generally seen in Primiparous women in the first days of lactation, and it is painless, bilateral, and generally resolved within a few days. In this study, the authors present a case report and review the literature about management of RPS. The case report is... A male infant was born vaginally to a 28-year-old primiparous woman at 38 weeks gestation. After delivery, the baby was diagnosed with transient tachypnea of the newborn and transferred to the neonatal intensive care unit. For the initiation of breastfeeding, a staff nurse visited the mother in the first hour and showed her hand expression of the milk. This was brownish milk from both breasts. Examination of the breast revealed no engorgement, tenderness, or erythema. The nipples and areola had no erosions, ulcers, or cracks. There was no history of breast trauma. Um, They also talked a little bit about the newborn's oral exam, and they said the mother was supported with breastfeeding counseling and was reassured. She expressed milk regularly, and the baby was exclusively breastfed by cup. The breast milk decolorized within 40 hours. Um, by the third day, this baby was latching to the breast and is still followed exclusively breastfeeding at five and a half months. Oh, I forgot to mention this um came out of Turkey. Um yeah. Yeah, so cup
0: feeding, in the, cup feeding in the United
1: States. Yeah, not very often. So um in the discussion, the authors remind us that RPS is a benign, pain, painless condition that occurs as spontaneous, bloody, or brown nipple discharge in pregnant women in the third trimester or in the first days of breastfeeding. Owing to different management, it can have the potential of hampering exclusive breastfeeding. Um, it can be noticed when the mother expresses the milk or the infant vomits blood. Um, which can sometimes test positive for the adult hemoglobin or apt test. Although I have asked for this in several hospitals and it's pretty much impossible to get over Mm -hmm. here. Um, Cracked nipples and trauma may be the cause, but pathological conditions such as intraductal papilloma or fibrocystic disease should be excluded. Mastitis, cracked nipples and trauma are associated with pain. Ductal papilloma is usually unilateral. In the literature, RPS was mostly recognized with milk expression soon after birth, as in this case. The condition remains unnoticed unless the mother is expressing milk. Um, In two of the cases they reviewed, the mother had the bloody discharge during her pregnancy. Um, Diagnosis is first made by anamnesis. This word means having seen it in the past and recognizing it now, which is something we do a lot in medicine, which is um, not a word that I knew, but was really interesting because the medical student who came and said, I was trying to help the mom and she had blood coming out of her nipples. And I was like, well, she probably has trauma from the baby latching. And we went to look and she had no trauma. And I was like, oh, well then it's this. (laughs) Um, And along with a normal physical examination followed by complementary examinations if necessary, such as cytological analysis of the mammary secretion or ultrasound, which may help rule out pathological conditions. Um, In the literature, most common investigations um, were of those two types, and the authors in the study did an ultrasound to rule out breast mass. So in summary, RPS is a rare physiological self-limiting condition and knowledge of it among health professionals can be helpful to avoid unnecessary investigation or anxiety in mothers.
0: Yeah, so I think that, um, like, I don't see it very often. I don't know, do you see it very often?
1: No, I don't see it very often, but it was just, I don't know, a month or two ago that this happened, and it occurred to me that, you know, even some of the doctors that I work with routinely in the newborn nursery are probably not aware of it, and it's a good thing to review now and again.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, I think that if there's like a like a lot of just bright red blood, it's not just that it's rusty pipe. It's like, you know, clots and lots of fresh, bright red blood. I would say that that's not as common. I mean, I have seen that before, but I think, in fact, someone may be presented that on one, uh, on the listserv. Um, but I don't see that as common as just the um, more, you know, uh, like, like rusty, you know, like an old blood, you know, that's not really clotting. That's just kind of um, changing the color turning them all kind of pink or rust colored. Um, and then if it's bilateral, I would be more reassured that it's, that it's, you know, rusty pipe syndrome versus um, like something like a papilloma or a lesion.
1: Yeah. And I think, I mean, I generally initially take a wait and see mentality because if it clears up, straight away, then there's no need to do a bunch of tests.
0: Yeah, exactly, yeah, by the time you get the ultrasound scheduled and done, especially during the
1: COVID times, it's gonna go away. So then, you know, you can always get
0: yeah. it out later and if it's still there, then you do an ultrasound.
1: Yeah, and the care case series, the the longest that it was noted for was 10 days. 10 days.
0: Ah, okay, that's good to know. Um, the, um, yeah, and then the babies might poop black you know, that's the other thing is that they might have, uh, and sometimes I'll spit up more because it's kind of irritating to the stomach. Blood. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, it's a real thing. And, um, yeah, I agree. We should change the name now. It is the wild, wild west out there. So, you know, how many things are like, you know, Stevens-Johnson syndrome and, um, you know, Irlo Danlos and like, there's all, everyone like has has like, has put their stake in on these syndromes. And so, you know,
1: we should have a, a name. We, we need be that. ash bodnar syndrome.
0: Yes, yeah, yeah. I don't know if I want that one. I'll this
1: isn't maybe not, maybe not the one that we
0: want. I'm gonna find one. Gonna get my name I mean,
1: on I don't, hemolactia. Yeah, hemo, hemo, I don't know. I mean, even this is a problem with like, you know, the words that are used for like lactation in, it's not really like nipple discharge in men are not the same as when we are talking about what's going, you know, we just need some, we need some new words. And we also need in the United States, new codes so that we can more specifically identify the diagnoses that we are making um, you know, it drives me crazy that there isn't a, a code for nipple shield use, because it would be so helpful in understanding they use a lot of that coding for research, and uh, it's nothing is being recorded. It's garbage in, garbage out for the research. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah, really good point about, you know, being able to, especially with our electronic medical record system where we can do so much correlation and dig up cases and it would be so great if we had adequate documentation, so totally agree. Um, Okay, well, I'm going to just kind of, you know, kind of throw out this one case that I thought was interesting. Uh, This was a case that uh, was published from a group in Baylor, at Baylor in Houston, And this was, you probably heard about this, Karen, the 67-year-old woman, Pymep, who became pregnant via in in vitro fertilization with donor um, oocytes. So this woman, um, she did have some pre-existing diseases. She um, had hypertension, high cholesterol, obesity, and somehow she convinced this group to help her get pregnant. Um, So she had um, donor eggs, and her partner or husband had uh, donated the sperm, or I don't know don't either, however, <laughs> I don't Contributed. Know. Yeah, contributed, there you go. Um, and so according to the CDC, there's now like a 70% increase in the number of women over 40 giving birth. And uh, do you know when the first IVF procedure was? Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. In the 90s. Uh, 1976. Oh! <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know how how successful it was back then, but now 1.7 percent of pregnancies are actually done by IVF. Oh,
1: I, I actually would have guessed higher, but it's probably just the population that I am in. It's it's definitely higher here.
0: Yeah, these are yeah. It makes sense
1: <laughs> Is that yeah. nationally or internationally?
0: Uh, I think it's probably it's, it's national. Yeah, because it's okay. CDC reporting. Um, But I would agree, and probably in our breastfeeding medicine clinics, we're seeing groups of people who have more resources, they have higher breastfeeding rates, and they're more likely to have had had this happen, and more likely to have problems, right? Yes. Um, So interestingly, one comment that was made in this case is that it was really hard for the doctors to get various procedures covered because she had Medicare, and they don't usually do like obese, like cover obese stuff unless, I mean, I know that some women have Medicare, and they are pregnant, because we have women with chronic disabilities who are on Medicare, but um, maybe it's the way that they're coded or something, but they had difficulty getting Medicare to pay for the OB ultrasounds, because it's not really a population that tends to have OB ultrasounds, um, and then I thought that was interesting, and then due to, so she did develop some mild congestive heart failure, failure. they were watching her heart echoes because, you know, she's older and she has high blood pressure. So she had some mild congestive heart failure. And so then she underwent cesarean birth at 35 and six sevens. Um, She actually breastfed exclusively um, for several weeks, um, for six weeks. And and I think that's really interesting because the, you know, the author acknowledged that age is usually accompanied by lobular involution. There's a decrease in size and complexity of the ductal tree. And there's a lot of replacement with fat, which is, why women tend, you know, they have like breasts that don't have as much trigger, or, you know, they, they're, you know, they're, they droop, what can I say? Um, and so uh, the expectation would have been that she would have made less milk at 67, but she actually did really well. So that was super interesting. Um, and I wonder if it may have had something to do with like, she probably had hormonal support of her pregnancy for the first 12 weeks. I've often wondered whether that hormonal support that women get when they have IVF, if that, interferes with breast development because, you know, these are women who do have a higher risk of not making enough milk um, and, uh, but you know,
1: she did really well. So I was uh, pretty impressed by that. Hmm. Was there any information on when she had uh, lactogenesis too? No, Mm-mm. no. I think Cause was- you know, she had that cesarean which can be a risk factor for having your milk come in later and her age and. Yeah. I have a lot of patients in my clinic who are over the age of 40. And I recently had one who was 49, first pregnancy, IVF, history of breast reduction surgery. And Um, no one told her that she might have trouble breastfeeding. It was um, really kind of sad. Yeah.
0: I had someone who's 52 recently who had her first IVF. And she was doing great, she had plenty of milk, but she had not gone through menopause yet. So she was super healthy. I mean, that's one thing that I do notice for sure. Like, I feel like it was really pretty, like when I think back to my practice in the 1990s, it seems like the conversation was pretty much like, yeah, I'm going around 50. And that's usually what my patients would report, that they would stop menstruating at around 49 to 51. Now I feel like the majority of my patients um, are stopping menstruation closer to 54 to 56. I have someone right now who's still menstruating at
1: 58. Oh, boo.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I think it, you know, I mean, you know, it's one of those things that there's a lot of, there are a lot of things in life that we don't have documented, you know, like, um, I I guess I'd have to look at the literature to see really what the trend is. Um, But I mean, I think that there are these women who just exercise, they're strong, they have a lot of muscle mass, they drink green smoothies. (laughs) They just are, old, they have ultra, like they're so well fertilized with adequate nutrition that they just keep these engines going longer. And that's the way I look at it. So
1: more reasons to put my feet up on the couch and eat potato chips.
0: <laughs> no, 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 no. But this woman, I mean, she did have um, pathology. I mean, she was 67. She had, I mean, I have a lot of patients in my practice who are 70 who don't have these problems, but um, she did have, you know, obesity, um, hypertension, hypertension.
1: And um, high cholesterol. So. Oh, no, that heart failure is scary. I mean, yeah. pregnancy dangerous. It is dangerous. Yeah, it's really dangerous. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so that was something. Um, yeah, so that's what I have. The- and you have another. So we're going to talk about COVID. Is that right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, we're going to talk about COVID one more time. I felt like if we put it at the end, then if people don't want to listen to it, they can just turn me off and... Yeah, Be done with it. But honestly, you know, the AAP came out with guidance about um, management of infants born to mothers with suspected or confirmed COVID-19 back in April. And then there was a update, this most recent update was, um, I think it was the third update on September 9th which um, for us was the day after virtual school started, and I missed it completely for several weeks because I was just, you know, in the fifth grade. Um, But they say um, additional revisions to this guidance are anticipated as further evidence becomes available. However, um, what they have added to the guidance now is the risk that a newborn tests positive for SARS-CoV-2 in the hours or days after birth to a mother with COVID-19 at the time of delivery is informed by published case series and over 3,000 cases reported to date in the AAP perinatal COVID-19 registry. Current data suggests that approximately 2% of newborns born to women who test positive for SARS-CoV-2 near the time of delivery, have tested positive in the first 24 to 96 hours after birth. They do not know of any newborns um, reported to the registry who have become ill at home following the hospital discharge. And there are a few case series of pediatric COVID-19 published to date, but clinicians and families should be aware that there are published reports of infants requiring hospitalization before one month of age due to severe COVID-19 infection. And there's no, there's not been any documented death of a baby due to COVID-19 during the birth hospitalization. Um, delayed cord clamping practices and skin-to-skin care in the delivery room should continue per usual center practice with mothers with COVID-19 should wear a mask when holding their baby. They have specifically said, um, while initial AAP guidance recommended temporary separation of newborns from infected mothers to prevent um, the newborn infant from becoming infected, um, after months of national and international experience with newborns born to mothers who have tested positive um, and um, with the... 3,000 mothers in the registry, the likelihood that an infant has a positive PCR test for SARS-CoV-2 is similar for infants who are separated from their mothers and for infants who room in with mothers using infection prevention measures. So families can now be informed that evidence to date suggests the risk appears no greater if mother and infant room in together using infection controlled measures compared to physical separation of the infant in a room separate from the mother.
0: Yeah. And then, um, so part of that is like, so maybe you're going to talk about this, but what does it mean to be, what do they do in the room? Right. Right. Do they have to be six feet away?
1: Okay. So they say a mother who is acutely ill with COVID-19 might not be able to care for her infant in a safe way. In this situation, it may be appropriate to temporarily separate mother and newborn or have the newborn cared for by a non-infected caregiver in the mother's room. Um, Currently, the authors recommend the following care of mothers um, with confirmed COVID-19 and their well newborns. Mom and newborn may room in to usual, according to usual center practice. During this birth hospitalization, mother should maintain a reasonable distance from her infant when possible. When a mother provides hands-on care to her newborn, she should wear a mask and perform hand hygiene. And they suggest use of an isolate may facilitate distancing and provide the infant an added measure of protection from respiratory droplets. But if using an isolate, care should be taken to properly latch doors because there have been um, very, there have been multiple near misses um, with infants being kept in isolates, which, you know, normally in the NICU, the nurses sort of monitor the doors.
0: Yeah. Well, and so it's interesting, like you said, that reasonable distance, if possible, as opposed to a strict six-foot distance. So that's, that's good.
1: Yeah. And that's because the data, you know, so much of our new um, data came out of New York in the height of the... Um, pandemic there, they really did not have the resources to have other people helping mothers to care for their babies. And they had usual practice of skin to skin. You know, they said, wash your hands and wear a mask and good luck. If non-infected partners or other family members are present, they should use masks and hand hygiene when providing hands-on care to the infant um, and as should the mother. If an infected mother chooses not to nurse her newborn, she may express milk after appropriate hand hygiene to be fed by uninfected caregivers. Um, And they say mothers of NICU infants may express milk for their infants during any time that their infection status prohibits their presence in the NICU. Centers should make arrangements to receive this milk from mothers until they are able to enter the NICU. And I think that's a really important phrase because I have um, heard of NICUs that are prohibiting mothers from bringing their milk because of the concern if it's stored of it accidentally being given to the wrong um, baby. And I'm, I think they could do a better job.
0: Oh yeah, that's, that's, that's
1: not fair. Um, they go on to say discharge newborns based on your center's usual criteria. In most cases, infants testing will be negative and they did sort of reiterate their previous statement about testing at 24 and 48 hours. However, um, there's more flexibility now and if one test is desired, it should be in that timeframe. Infants will be discharged to families where other caregivers have been exposed to and may have acquired COVID-19 infection. Every effort should be taken to provide infection prevention education to all caregivers of the infant on how to care for the infant and when to to discontinue isolation measures. There is no advantage to early hospital discharge for infants born to COVID positive or COVID negative mothers. In-person post-discharge visits are the preferred means to provide timely newborn follow-up newborn screening, bilirubin testing, feeding and weight assessments. And then there was additional information on NICU visitation guidelines that had to do with understanding when um, families are no longer infectious, that I'm not going to go through all of it, but it's there for people who would like to review it. Mm -hmm. Great. Did you talk about that? No, it still says babies should be bathed. after birth to get off any viral schmutz. And, and my understanding of this is, you know, really studies have shown that there is not viable virus from the amniotic fluid. So it's less concerning from cesarean section, but as anyone who has attended vaginal deliveries, know, the mom's stool can get on the baby. And that is considered a potentially infect, a source of infectious virus. Um, many centers are not changing their birth practices.
0: Their mm-hmm. birth
1: practices. Yeah.
0: yeah, I mean, there are definitely is a risk of, I, I think the early dating is associated with hypothermia. So they just don't nurse as well.
1: And hypoglycemia. Oh, um, yeah,
0: yeah, related to the hypothermia. Yeah, mm-hmm. however that's related. So, yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, That would be really good for flu season because we had such a battle in the past with influenza season, separating moms and babies. And hopefully everyone will remember that we, you know, that that's not something
1: that we do for influenza. Well, it's not something you do for influenza, but (laughs) some places, including Uh, my hospital, it is something that happens. Mm And so- That was actually like, that got toned down over the years. I think well, we got, it's very strict. It's like if the diagnosis and how long has the mom been treated with Tamiflu, which, you know, it's different for flu, like you can get the the certain, you know, it's a much shorter window that moms need to be treated. And so it's not this like super long.
0: Yeah, but we, we originally, I mean, my understanding is that uh, initially, you know, we talked about this and how you know, if the mom is separated from the baby, the baby's going to go. When there's influenza outbreak, so many people have influenza; it is so common. So then the baby goes into you know a separate space like a nursery, and it's taken care of by someone who's got the snuffles and they're probably going to give influenza to that baby anyway. So the influenza vaccine is not super effective; it's somewhat effective, and so then this baby's at risk for being separated. So then I remember this conversation then. Um, so we did,
1: ended up not separating them at our hospital. So. And a lot of them don't. Um, I think, you know, there is, there are a lot of different personalities at play. And when we're trying to change hospital policies, I just feel like I'm rolling that rock up the hill every day.
0: Yeah. yeah. That's why you're so strong. all right karen well it's great talking to you um and uh we have a surprise for everyone with a guest well hopefully a guest to join us to talk about um some some upcoming
1: i guess we haven't even invited yet but i'm sure we'll agree we'll work on that
0: we'll just have to lasso her in. yeah that's yeah she has no choice (laughs) yes (laughs) she will be there (laughs) so okay well that'll be exciting and uh I will talk to you, you know, in the next couple weeks. Sounds great. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. For questions regarding this podcast, please contact us through our website at lacted.org. We have other educational projects, including the clinical question of the week, our little green book of breastfeeding management for physicians, and our various educational courses and conferences for physicians and other breastfeeding supporters. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Breastfeeding Medicine podcast Facebook page, where you can post any questions or comments about our podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you
1: in about four weeks.